0: Good evening, and welcome to the third and uh, uh, last lecture. Unfortunately, everybody says, from Hermani Lee tonight. And uh, the introduction tonight is going to be given by Professor Christine Stanzel in the Department of History. Whoops, Christine. Well, I am the last introducer, and so I'm not going to recur to all of Hermione Lee's achievements. I will say something that no one else did mention, which is that we're very lucky to have her on this side of the Atlantic this year. She is now a fellow at the Coleman Center for Writers and Scholars at New York Public Library. And I do want to take my moment to pay tribute to Hermione's Virginia Woolf, which is, I believe, one of the most stunning biographies of certainly the last decade, and I venture, and I'm not one given to hyperbole, that it may well become one of the great biographies of the second half of the 20th century. It's great because of Hermione's gifts, but also certainly because of her subject before Hermione's book caps a quarter of a century of feminist scholarship, which has rediscovered Woolf and placed her properly in her own quirky, ironic way as a towering figure of modernism, a colossus. But in Wolf, I mean in Hermione, Wolf also found her proper biographer, uh, someone who was worthy of her a writer with a mind at once sufficiently fluid and sufficiently capacious to address such a large and complicated and startling life. With Hermione's book, we're no longer in the presence of the angelic, lovely girl, the pre-Raphaelite figure that has graced many, many covers, the doomed, brilliant suicide. Rather, we encounter Virginia Woolf certainly as the bereft child, the daughter, and certainly, yes, as the adolescent who heard the sparrows speak Greek from her sickbed. but only while she was learning Greek herself. Foremost in Hermione's book, we find the magnificent creature who emerged from those difficult and traumatic experiences, the writer, the beloved and loving wife, the loving and marvelous friend, um, the capable printer, the ardent feminist, the um, reveler in expensive clothes and elegant parties, and the committed anti-fascist. All of those things in one book. Um, Hermione will speak tonight on Virginia Woolf's nose.
1: Thank you very much. I want to thank Christine Sansel for introducing me, and I also want to thank my other introducers in this series of three, uh, Paul Muldoon and Deborah Nord, above all, for braving a tornado. I gather there was a tornado in New Jersey last night, and it felt a bit like it. But anyway, thank you all also, my audience, for staying with these three lectures. Biography is a process of making up or making over. The New Oxford Dictionary of English, 2001, includes in its definitions of making up to compose or constitute a whole of parts, to put together or prepare something like mortar from parts or ingredients, to arrange type and illustrations on a page, and to concoct or invent a story. Making over has two meanings, to transfer the possession of something to someone and to completely transform or remodel something, such as a person's hairstyle or nose. Since biographers try to compose a whole out of parts, evidence, testimony, stories, chronologies, and arrange it on the page... Since they appropriate their subjects and usually attempt to create a new or special version of them so that we speak of Adele's James or Elman's Joyce, and since they must give a quasi-fictional story-like shape to their material or no one will read them, these terms seem to fit. But pulling against making up and making over, both of which imply some form of alteration or untruth, is the need for accuracy and the responsibility to likeness. Whether we think of biography as more like history or more like fiction, what we want from it is a vivid sense of the person. The reader's first question of the biographer is always going to be, what was she or he like? Other questions like, why, or how do you know, or do we approve, or does it matter, may follow but likeness must be there And when we're reading other forms of life writing, autobiography, memoir, journal, letter, autobiographical fiction or poem or song, or when we are trying ourselves to tell the story of a life, whether in an obituary or in a conversation or a confession or a book, we are always drawn to what will reveal likeness, moments of intimacy, revelation, particular inwardness. Readers of biography are greedy readers with an insatiable appetite for detail and story. There are all kinds of ways of satisfying these appetites. Coming at a likeness will always involve a messy, often contradictory, mixture of approaches. And it's that all-encompassing quality which gives biography some of its appeal and makes it so resistant to theorising. History, politics, sociology, gossip... Fiction, literary criticism, psychoanalysis, documentary, journalism, ethics, philosophy, all are scrambled up inside this genre. But the target of all these approaches is a living person in a body, not a smoothed over figure. What makes biography so endlessly absorbing is that through all the documents and letters and witnesses, the conflicting opinions and partial memories and fictionalized versions, we keep catching sight of a real body, a physical life, The young Dickens coming quickly into a room, sprightly, long-haired, bright-eyed, dandyish in a crimson velvet waistcoat or tartan trousers. The sound of Coleridge's voice as he talked magically on and on and on. Rambo, dust-covered and scrawny and dressed in baggy grey khaki trousers leading a caravan of camels across the desert sands of Abyssinia. Joyce with a black felt hat, thick glasses and a cigar sitting in Sylvia Beach's bookshop in Paris. Edith Wharton and Henry James, veiled and hatted, tucked up comfortably in the back of the panhard behind the chauffeur, exchanging impressions as they zoom along the empty French roads. Biography has changed enormously in the last hundred years in what it allows itself to talk about. Samuel Johnson and Thomas Carlyle, great British pioneers of life writing, called above all for veracity rather than panegyric, for a warts and all picture which should include the representation of the minute details of daily life. A more protective practice, a more idealising censoring kind of biography developed, though not exclusively so in the Victorian period. But with the increasing dominance, popularity, professionalization, and it must be added scandal-mongering of biography in the 20th century, real warts are now allowed allowed to be included. The life of the body plays much more of a part in contemporary biographical narratives. Masturbation, dental work, body odour, menstruation, gonorrhea, addictions and sexual preferences are all permissible subjects. As Virginia Woolf observed, opinions change as the times change, and one of the biographers' job is to detect the presence of obsolete conventions. All the same, from the time that Dryden, writing in the 1680s, praised Plutarch's lives for showing us the domestic lives of great heroes like Alexander in their private lodgings and their undress, the pageantry of life is taken away. You see the poor, reasonable animal, as naked as as nature ever made him, are made acquainted with his passions and his follies and find the demigod a man. Ever since then, biography has always directed us to the figure of a real person in all her or his peculiarity accidentalness and actuality But that imitation of reality may be put together out of all kinds of bits and pieces, contradictions, myths and mysteries, and guesswork. And that's what I've been talking about. And sometimes it may seem, from the way I've been talking about this, as if chronological facts make up the least of the business. Uh, At a conference in London uh, in the 1990s, when various practitioners, myself included, were holding forth on the ambiguities and relativity of biography, the biographer of a philosopher, rose to his feet and said, but there is such a thing as a fact. Once, Well, once we get to anything less well attested than a time and a date for tea written in a person's diary or the outbreak of the First World War, most biographical facts are open to interpretation. But they do exist, and they lie around biographers in huge files and boxes waiting to be turned into story. These facts have owners... They belong to the lives of the biographer's subject and the people whom the subject knew, loved, hated, worked with, or brought up, or perhaps met once in the street in passing. All these people will feel a claim over the fact that concerns them. I've had one experience of this so far, and it's minute, but I want to share it with you, as they say. It's my first experience of being on the receiving end of this, which was to read in a biography of my friend, the novelist, Brian Moore, that I and my husband, John, uh, got lost on our way to visit Brian and Jean Moore at their remote house in Nova Scotia in the mid-1990s and had to spend the night in a hotel. No such thing happened. It simply didn't happen. And although this fact didn't have the slightest bearing on Brian Moore's story, except I suppose as a useful tool for describing how out of the way his house was, I felt a twinge of outrage and bafflement on reading this as though a tiny part of my life had been forever traduced. I imagine, then, what it might be like, as for Ted Hughes, for instance, to feel that one's whole life had been falsely made over by biographers. Hence his despairing, angry, and futile cry, which I quoted to some of you last night. I hope each one of us owns the facts of his or her own life. No, For the biographised and for their friends and family, there is a fight from the death over facts between the participants in a life and the writers of it. And even if unusually no such tug of war takes place, the biographer alone in their room still has to have the internal tussle between making up and fact, between making over and likeness. No wonder that such strong emotions of blame and anger can circulate around biography, or that it is likely to be seen, in the worst cases, as a form of betrayal. Uh, there's a very gripping and interesting story about biography as betrayal in the case of Froude and Carlyle, which I'm sure some of you know, but which I'm not going to deal with tonight. For those with an investment in a life story, whether as relatives or descendants or friends or ex-lovers or colleagues or admirers or scholars or devoted readers, a kind of despair can be felt if what's judged to be an inauthentic version of the life gains currency and prevails. Virginia Woolf provides a very interesting example here because like Sylvia Plath or Shelley or Jane Austen, her life and work have been since her death variously and passionately idealized, vilified, fictionalised and mythologised, an eventful life is not a prerequisite for such passionate makeovers. Now that this much contested life story has been turned into novel and film, a powerful, popularised version of her, for the time being, prevails. In this version, biography and fiction have become blurred together to produce an image of Virginia Woolf, which has aroused considerable anger in those who feel she has been thereby betrayed. So after this lengthy uh, preamble, I want in this last talk to go beyond the confines of written biography and to look in some detail at this recent making up or making over of Wolfe. I want to see what gets left out, what gets invented and what comes through in the complicated amalgamation of fiction, life writing and filmmaking which make up these recent reinterpretations or versionings of her And I want to ask what these versionings have to tell us about Wolf's influence and her afterlife and about the processes of telling a life story. So let's begin at the beginning.
2: begin to hear voices and can't concentrate. So I am doing what seems to be the best thing to do. You have been in every way all that anyone could be. I know that I am spoiling your life. And without me, you could work. And you will. I know. You see, I can't even write this properly. What I want to say is that I owe all the happiness of my life to you. You have been entirely patient with me. And incredibly good. Everything is gone from me, but the certainty of your goodness. I can't go on spoiling your life any longer. I don't think two people could have been happy.
1: eyes dry magic it's all done with buttons <laughs> Okay, that was the beginning, as you know, of the film The Hours, 2003, written by David Hare, directed by Stephen Daldry, and based on the novel by Michael Cunningham. We heard in voiceover the words of Virginia Woolf's suicide note to her husband Leonard, and we saw Nicole Kidman as Woolf, looking young and fierce, writing the note, leaving her country house on a beautiful summer day, walking determinedly in a tweed coat down the garden path and towards the riverbank and slowly entering until she is fully immersed the green sun and shade dappled waters of a gently flowing river to the accompaniment of birds calling and a pulsating emotional score by Philip Glass. So we saw the beginning of a life story which is moving inexorably towards that death. And in the next moment that you see her in the film, uh, she's starting to write Mrs Dalloway. So to a casual audience, the two things, uh, Wolfe's writing of the novel and her suicide, might seem to be going on at the same time. As the story of Mrs Dalloway unfolds in her mind in the film, it is entirely about the choice between life and death. The other two narratives in the film, which has three intercut storylines, and I'm going to come back to that, are also concerned with that choice. I noticed a tiny pause in the voiceover there, which took me back to the work I did on my biography of Wolfe, which was one of the sources which was used by Michael Cunningham and by the filmmakers and actors. When I read uh, the manuscript of Wolfe's suicide notes to Leonard, uh, in fact, she wrote two versions for him and one for her sister Vanessa unable to stop revising her work until the very end Uh, and I read those heartbreaking phrases I feel certain that I'm going mad again I feel we can't go through another of those terrible times you have given me the greatest possible happiness I was struck by the organisation of the words on the page Wolf had written them in short jagged half lines as if she could hardly get to the end of the sentences I reproduced the letter in my biography as it looked on her page, almost like a poem. Michael Cunningham reprinted it in the same way in his novel, and as we hear Kidman speaking the words at the start of the film and see her writing them, I don't know if you notice, but she hesitates almost imperceptibly on one of those line breaks as if she can't quite go on. The process of creative translation that stretches from Virginia Woolf writing that letter 63 years ago to Nicole Kidman playing her character with award-winning, long-nosed intensity is a long and complex one. It layers Woolf's 1925 novel Mrs. Dalloway with Cunningham's novel, the surprise American literary hit and Pulitzer Prize winner of 1999, with David Hare's screenplay for and Stephen Daudry's direction of the film of the hours. I think Woolf would have been intrigued by this process. Mrs. Dalloway, as Elaine Showalter has noted, is an extremely cinematic novel. Woolf was showing an interest at this time in the cinema as a new medium, which could express emotions like fear without words. She wrote an essay on this in 1926 after going to see The Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. She says, It seems plain that the cinema has within its grasp innumerable symbols for emotions that have so far failed to find expression. The most fantastic contrast could be flashed before us with a speed which the writer can only toil after in vain. However, in her enthusiasm for the new form, she notes that the results of adapting famous novels for the screen are quote, "disastrous to both," and her example is Anna Karenina, of which she must have seen a pre-Garbo Uh, earlier 1920s version because the Garbo film comes out after this essay and I don't know which version she saw so if there's a um, 1920s film buff in the audience I'd be very grateful to know. In the film says Wolf we just see Anna's teeth, her pearls and her velvet and scenes of her kissing Vronsky with enormous succulence, great deliberation and infinite gesticulation on a sofa in an extremely well appointed library while a gardener incidentally mows the lawn. In the book, says Wolfe, we know Anna almost entirely by the inside of her mind. So, she says, we lurch and lumber through one of the most famous novels of the world. A salutary warning, you might think, for the adapters of a novel that itself adapted and rewrote Mrs. Dalloway. Mrs. Dalloway was the ideal novel through which to fictionalise, as Cunningham did, the life of Virginia Woolf, because it is itself so much about life writing. And if any of the rest of this talk is going to make any sense at all, I've got to now pause for a little while on Mrs. Dalloway, and uh, I do this with profound apologies for those of you who know it by heart. Early on in the novel, the aeroplane above the Mall, which the citizens of post-war peacetime London are gazing up at wonderingly and happily, loops its advertisement in the sky, writing a different message for each of them. But what letters? A C, was it? An E? Then an L? Only for a moment did they lie still. Glaxo. Cremo. It's Toffee, murmured Mr. Bewley. Septimus Smith, reading these words in the sky, uh, thinks that they're a signal directed at him, though he could not read the language yet. Everyone in the novel has an unreadable life secreted inside them in layer upon layer of memory, emotion, habit, thought and response, which the language of the novel burrows down into and excavates, but which can only be glimpsed on the surface in the simplified single letters, like the letters the aeroplane is spelling, by which we recognize each other externally. Mrs. Dalloway's maxim is that she would not say of anyone in the world now that they were this or were that. The novel describes people living extremely complex and volatile interior lives and breaking through to occasional moments of recognition, of which the most intimate and unlikely is that between the society lady and Tory MP's wife, uh, Clarissa Dalloway, and Septimus Smith, though they never meet. Woolf's working title for the novel was The Hours, which Cunningham takes as his title, and her notes to herself about the writing of The Hours include this passage, which Cunningham uses as his epigraph. I should say a good deal about The Hours and my discovery, how I dig out beautiful caves behind my characters. I think that gives exactly what I want, humanity, humour, depth. The idea is that the caves shall connect, and each comes to daylight at the present moment. As usual, when she's working on a new novel, it's the issue of form that most concerns her or that initially concerns her. And she'd set herself a challenging task to write the story of an unremarkable woman in London to link together two utterly different post-war lives with no apparent connection and and to contrast, as she put it, the world seen by the sane and the insane side by side. In a deliberate allusion to Joyce's Ulysses, which Wolfe disliked but had read at least parts of with care and concentration, the novel takes place on a single day. On this day, a middle-aged, unemployed, married, wealthy, upper-class woman who has just recovered from an illness has an unexpected reunion with the man who wanted to marry her and gives a party. A A young married man of a lower class who has fought in the war and is suffering from dementia sees his doctors and kills himself. The narrative weaves between the two without their ever meeting. The day's progress is marked by the striking and chiming of bells, which somehow seem to relate to or embody the characters, and hence her working title. A variety of strategies are used to link the two main stories and to bind the characters' separate lives into a whole shape. Like Proust's long novel, A La Recherche du Temps Perdu, which Wolfe admired, also much concerned with memory and time, it culminates in the giving of the party at which the hostess hears the news of the young man's death and some sense of conclusion is reached, although the party itself, as in Proust, is a disappointment. As the hours go past and the story of the day unfolds, a fluid, flexible narrative weaves between inner and outer, past and present time, immediate and imagined experiences, spaces, places, and minds. Character is as important to her as form. All Wolfe's essays on modern fiction, written mostly in the years leading up to Mrs. Dalloway, are about what new tools can be used by the modern fiction writer to create character. She sees fiction as a form of life writing. But she is at pains not to write autobiographical fiction, though many of her own emotions and experiences, including her breakdowns, get into this novel. Clarissa Dalloway, a rather superficial, charming, poorly read, apolitical, conservative woman in her early 50s with a teenage daughter and a smart house in Westminster is nothing like Virginia Woolf, though she shares her intense memories of childhood, her sexual ambivalence and and anxiety, her strong emotions for women, her need for both solitude and society, her preoccupation with illness and mortality and her passionate love for the life of the city. Clarissa's interior life is at odds with the conventional establishment figure we see on the surface. We're made aware of this inner life as Mrs. Dalloway does the ordinary things a woman of her class and time would do. Buying flowers, crossing the road, reading a message by the telephone pad, changing her clothes, mending her dress, getting ready for her party. This is the female domestic trivia that in A Room of One's Own, Woolf would riley argue has been thought less important as material for fiction than male subjects such as waging war or playing football. Clarissa Dalloway has a vivid, strong, eager love of life which has nothing to do with religious faith but connects her to her mystical sense of a form of immortality through memory and places. She detests coercion or bullying, those who want to force your soul or impose belief or obedience. This applies to the love and religion of Doris Kilman, her daughter's companion, of whom she is scornful and jealous, the psychiatric methods of the mental doctor, Sir William Bradshaw, a guest at her party, and the demanding infantile love once offered by Peter Walsh. Clarissa seems edge-on to the world she observes. This links her to the novel's other main character, Septimus Smith, The novel's narrator, hovering between its characters, says, this late age of the world's experience had bred in them all a world of tears. Septimus, himself dry-eyed throughout, is the victim of this late age of the world's experience. An estate agent's clerk in his 20s, married to an Italian girl who makes hats, he went to war in 1914, fought through it till 1918, and saw his best friend Evans killed. Septimus survives, but he can't feel anything. He is hallucinating visions of the dead, and he has paranoid delusions that messages are being sent for him to, him, to, for him to broadcast. He feels he's in total isolation. He can't communicate. So he could be an image, uh, if you want to read it in this way, of the experimental misunderstood artist. He's threatening to kill himself, and so the doctors are on to him. Septimus's single story embodies all the terrible deaths and losses of the Great War that underlie the surface of the novel. Septimus, far out on the edge of the normal world, violently enacts the social critique which Woolf wanted her novel to contain. His presence exposes the social complacency, the class divisions, the hypocrisy and exclusions of conservative post-war England, which are all sharply caricatured in the novel. And these seem to crumble away, in the light of Septimus's apocalyptic visions, triggered by the traumatic force of what he's witnessed in the trenches. So, through the shimmer and glitter of 1920s party going London, pushes up all that terror, despair, and grief. Septimus's dementia and its treatment links him to Clarissa through the figure of Sir William Bradshaw, the eugenicist incarcerator of the mentally ill, who makes a tidy profit from his patients. When Sir William appears at Clarissa's party and mentions that one of them has committed suicide, Clarissa feels an inexplicable empathy. She perceives Septimus Smith's death as an act of free choice as well as a thing of horror. In a sense, he does it for her. The original plan for the novel was that she was to kill herself or perhaps merely to die at the end of the party. That's Virginia Woolf's retrospective account of what she had planned. And that's the authorial choice which will so interest Michael Cunningham. Instead, Clarissa returns to her guests at the party and is recognized as a living presence. The novel ends as if by claiming that it has achieved the job of fiction, or indeed of life writing, of bringing her into being, for there she was. Mrs. Dalloway is a modern novel in several senses. It's published in 1925, in the middle of the decade of the greatest experiment in modernist writing. It's contemporaneous, written between 1922 and 1924, and set on a Wednesday in June 1923. It treats very difficult subjects, madness, shell shock, bisexuality, sexual repression, maternal jealousy, the catastrophic effects of the war, in a suggestive and ironic and unpolemical way. It makes bold experiments with fictional form. It tells a whole history of a class and a society even a country on the basis of a single day in the life not the methods of a victorian or edwardian novel and it uses the present moment in the life of an ordinary woman defined only by her married status and her surname in the title as the center for its meditation on life and death what does michael cunningham do with this contradiction in terms a modernist classic first and boldly he sets it in america Although Woolf never crossed the Atlantic, she once wrote a surreal, fascinated fantasy called America Which I Have Never Seen, and she might well, I think, have made the journey had she lived. It was a brilliant stroke to move the story of Mrs. Dalloway from London to New York with all the excitement of city life transferred to the streets of Manhattan. Woolf's pleasure in the bellow and the uproar, the triumph and the jingle of life London this moment of June becomes Cunningham's stirring New York, the royal and shocking of it, its racket and intricacy hard to tell their styles apart in those quotes. Cunningham sees that Mrs. Dalloway is a book in love with a city it was written during the time that the Wolfs moved in early 1924 into Bloomsbury from Richmond the quiet suburb where they'd been living since 1913 because of her breakdown and illness. London means life, the suburbs are a living death The city is where the party is going on. She wrote rejoicingly in her diary, the whole of London, music, talk, friendship, city views, books, publishing, something central and inexplicable. All this is now within my reach, as it hasn't been since August 1913. Wolfe's novel famously begins, Mrs. Dalloway said she would buy the flowers herself. Cunningham's novel begins twice, once with Wolfe's suicide and once with Mrs. Dalloway setting out to buy the flowers. But in this case, Mrs. Dalloway is a nickname given to a bisexual New Yorker, Clarissa Vaughan, by her friend and one-time lover, the writer Richard Brown, who is terminally ill with AIDS at the end of the 20th century. This Clarissa is 52, like her namesake, but unlike her, she is not married to Richard Dalloway. She lives with a woman called Sally, named after Mrs. Dalloway, Sally Seaton, who was the intimate friend of Clarissa's youth. Like the original Mrs. Dalloway, Clarissa Vaughan is giving a party, a party for her dying friend to celebrate his winning a literary prize for his novel, whose subject is A Woman Who Commits Suicide. There are two other narratives in the hours. One is the story of a suburban American housewife, Laura Brown, pregnant with her second child, who lives with her obtuse but loving husband just back from the war, and her anxious, over-dependent little boy in a Los Angeles suburb in 1949. So like Mrs. Dalloway, this is a post-war story. In a last twist in the novel, the little boy turns out to be the writer Richard Brown, whose mother did not commit suicide but did abandon him. On the day we see her, Laura Brown is sleepwalking through her ordinary life, which just now consists in trying to make a cake for her husband's birthday party. But she is fighting against a strong sense of unreality, worthlessness, and longing for death. And she is reading Mrs. Dalloway. Michael Wood, in his review of The Hours, observed that the chief difference between Mrs. Dalloway and The Hours is that no one in the first novel can have read the second, whereas almost everyone in the second seems to have read the first. LAUGHTER The fragile life of Laura Brown trying to be a normal American wife and mother is, I think, the most touching section of the novel. We're left wondering to the end of the book whether, like the woman in her son's novel, she will kill herself, but I'm afraid I've already given this away. All sorts of Wolfian echoes are cunningly woven into the two American stories, the Clarissa Vaughan story and the Laura Brown story. Clarissa Vaughan's daughter Julia is, like Elizabeth Dalloway, enthralled to a woman who loathes Clarissa and makes her feel jealous, but this Doris Kilman is a militant feminist who resents Clarissa Vaughan's old fashioned bourgeois domestic lesbianism. Uh, they cut this they cut this strand in the film. Septimus's hallucinations are reenacted in Richard Brown's terminal illness. Shell shock and the traumatic the aftermath of the Great War are translated questionably in the view of some critics into the trauma of the AIDS epidemic in the late 20th century in America. Clarissa Vaughan, like Clarissa Dalloway, is visited by an old friend, Louis, a past lover of Richard's, while she's getting ready for her party, an emotional visit in which he breaks down and weeps. More playfully, royalty glimpsed in Bond Street by Mrs. Dalloway in Wolfe's novel becomes a film star, perhaps Meryl Streep, spotted on the streets of Manhattan. And in the movie, there she is. Cunningham's third story is the biographical one. It is the story of Virginia Woolf, who is living in Richmond, married to Leonard, having her sister and her sister's children to a tea party in June 1923 and writing Mrs. Dalloway. She argues with her servants, she's longing to move to London, she feels jealous of her sister's family life, and she's making up her mind whether or not to have Clarissa kill herself in the novel. And in the end, she decides that, I quote, sane Clarissa will go on, loving London, loving her life of ordinary pleasures, and someone else, a deranged poet, a visionary, will be the one to die. And framing that day in her her life is the day of her suicide on the 28th of March, 1941. I found this novel completely absorbing and I thought that it made a sensitive re- reinvention of Wolfe's inner life. Cunningham has a strong idea of what makes Wolfe's life, sorry I can't speak say this sentence, of what makes Wolfe's life heroic, of her dedication to her work in the teeth of illness, of her violent swings between moods of pleasure in life and abysses of depression. I did have some reservations about his reimaginings of Woolf, which stem from a a biographer's squeamish reluctance to see a real person made over into a fictional character with made-up thoughts and speeches. I found it quite hard to accept the tone of voice of a Virginia Woolf who thinks to herself, bless you, Quentin, uh, or who says to her husband, if you send Nellie in to interrupt me, I won't be responsible for my actions. Uh, And in these invented scenes and details, I felt some of the some of the class details didn't quite ring true I can't hear Virginia Woolf wanting to rush and quote fix her hair Um, and uh, Vanessa commenting on having bought a lovely coat for Angelica at Harrods gave me pause I mean Angelica would be much more likely to be wearing a cut down jacket of Duncan Grant's or some you know velvet cape made out of old curtains but fiction is allowed to do this while biography has to restrain itself unless it's being written by Peter Ackroyd. Um, (laughs) Cunningham is particularly interested in life as being like writing a kind of performance. Cunningham's wolf pauses at the door of Hogarth House to pull herself together. Quote, "'She had learned over the years that sanity involved a certain measure of impersonation. She is the author, Leonard, Nellie, Ralph, and the others are the readers. He imagines Wolfe impersonating an identity for the benefit of onlookers and readers, just as he is impersonating Wolfe. And he follows, too, her interest in the interior lives of ordinary women like Mrs. Brown and in the androgyneity of authorship. Like Wolfe, he's asking questions about how we value our lives.'" What is the value of a life of ordinary pleasures? Can a few outstanding moments provide consolation against the long beat of the hours? Do writing and reading make life bearable? Cunningham derives from Wolfe also an idea of immortality which has nothing to do with religion. Wolfe's Clarissa Dalloway imagines that somehow in the streets of London, on the ebb and flow of things, she survived, Peter survived, lived in each other, She being part, she was positive, of the trees at home, part of people she had never met, being laid out like a mist between the people she knew best. But it spread, ever so far, her life, herself. Cunningham imagines Wolf after her death in the river, still a part of people she had never met. This is Cunningham. All this enters the bridge, resounds through its wooden stone and enters Virginia's body. Her face pressed sideways to the piling, absorbs it all, the truck and the soldiers, the mother and the child. The Hours isn't an imitation, exactly, or a rewriting. In fact, this genre of book is very hard to define. Michael Wood calls it a haunting He says that The Hours is haunted by Mrs. Dalloway. The relationship between the two novels, he says, goes beyond illusion and even beyond the modernist habit of borrowing previous literary structures, which T.S. Eliot called the mythical method. I kept trying to find terms for this. Um, I mean, you may be able to help me with this, but none of them seem quite right. It's not a sequel A variation on a theme, a pastiche, no, a parallel, a plagiarism, a caricature, an homage, maybe, a transposition. Well, it's a making up and a making over. The making over of Wolfe's life and work takes a different shape in the translation of the novel The Hours into screenplay and film. The film of the hours, uh, if you just take the biopic part of it, uh, is vulnerable to charges of vulgarization inaccuracy and sentimentality. Certainly its presentation of the social details of Wolfe's lives was an irritant to this biographer. I thought Hogarth House and Monk's House um, looked much too grand and elegant in the film, more like Edith Wharton's house, actually, than the bohemian, messy, colourful Bloomsbury. They have servants in matching uniforms who are much too smartly turned out, though the battle between the servants and their uh, difficult mistress is well done. Vanessa, Vanessa Bell in a fine, spiteful performance by Miranda Richardson is absurdly posh. She's a sort of high society lady one couldn't possibly imagine picking up a paintbrush ever. Uh, And this brings me at last to the nose. Nicole Kidman, even with prosthetic addition and fixed scowl, doesn't look very like Virginia Woolf. She looks like Nicole Kidman wearing a nose. (laughs) She appears too young for the mid-40s author of Mrs. Dalloway, let alone for the 59-year-old who kills herself. And she lacks charm. I wish something of Woolf's gleeful comedy for which she was so renowned, her hooting laughter, her allure, her excited responses to people and gossip had been caught. I mean, I suppose it's a mark of Kidman's talent as an actress that she didn't do this, so successfully didn't do this, presumably she could have done it if she'd been asked to do it. David Hare's screenplay is more polemical than Michael Cunningham's novel. He makes much more of Wolfe's rage with her doctors and of the right to choose and proclaim one's sexuality. There are three kisses that take place between the the women in film and and in the novel, uh, between Virginia and Vanessa, between Laura Brown and her sick neighbour, between Clarissa and her partner, and they're much more deliberately emphasised in the film film than by Cunningham, who treats bisexuality as the normal condition of life. Everything is emphatic here in the film. Virginia and Leonard, played with wonderful, nervy intelligence by Stephen Delane, even if he isn't Jewish, Uh, whole personal testimonies uh, testimonies at each other on Richmond Station. Only I can understand my own condition. It was done out of love. Um, Virginia's outburst in this scene, incidentally, if I have to choose between Richmond and death, then I choose death, played rather differently in the Richmond Odeon than anywhere else in Britain. <laughs> In the big scene for Meryl Streep, it is Clarissa Vaughan, not as in the novel, the old friend who is visiting her, who breaks down in hysterical tears while she's getting ready for her party. I mean, it's a wonderful sort of culinary scene where she's making six souffles at once and then has this tremendous crying fit. This sentimental expressiveness is in strong contrast to Woolf's own fiction, one of whose most striking and alarming qualities is its inhibition. All the women in the film are on the edge of breakdown. All the emotional life is raging away on the surface, not, as in Mrs. Dalloway, breaking through convention and guardedness. The acting and direction play up feeling for all they are worth. There are a great many scenes with long emotional looks, tear-filled eyes, forgiving hugs, and expressions of love. It's very refreshing to find a caustic cameo performance in the New York flower shop by Eileen Atkins, who, of course, is more usually seen as Virginia Woolf. The central biographical travesty of the film is that for all its polemical earnestness about the mistreatment of mental illness and the constrictions imposed on Wolfe after her breakdown, it evacuates Wolfe's life of political intelligence or social acumen, returning her to the position of doomed, fey, mad, victim – I wish, for instance, that she could have been seen setting type at the press alongside Leonard, as she so often did, instead of wandering off for gloomily creative walks on Richmond Hill. I wish that the idea of creativity didn't consist in an inspirational flash of the first sentence leaping to the novelist's mind shortly followed by the whole book. This is not how Wolf wrote Mrs. Dalloway. She spent about three years revising and re-revising this book, and actually the beginning she first started with was not the one she ended up I wish that to the inattentive viewer it didn't look as if Virginia Woolf committed suicide just after finishing Mrs. Dalloway and sure enough, one short review of the film on a website called filmcritic.com reads, mentally ill author Virginia Woolf, Nicole Kidman is on suicide watch in 1920s England as she pens her novel Mrs. Dalloway above all, I wish her suicide hadn't been transformed as you saw there, into a picturesque idyll, Woolf was no Ophelia she drowned herself on a cold day in March in a dangerous, ugly river where the water runs so fast that nothing grows on the bare banks. She was wearing an old fur coat, Wellington boots, and a hat held on by an elastic band. Whether she jumped or walked, dropped under or struggled, we don't know. I interviewed Stephen daldry in the Oxford... Um, in in a cinema in Oxford um, when the film came out, and I challenged him about this version of the suicide, to which he responded, we only had Kidman for four weeks in June. (laughs) And we couldn't exactly strip the trees, could we? However, I must stop being satirical about it, because there is something... In the film. Uh, Where novel and film come together in an impressive tribute to Virginia Woolf, I think, is in their eloquence about a subject which so many years after Mrs. Dalloway and the death of its author is still a highly problematic one. And it is, can we choose whether to live or die? It is possible to die. She or anyone could make a choice like that. It is a reckless, vertiginous thought, Laura Brown thinks in the novel. In all three narratives, a decision is being made about suicide, and that's true of the novel and the film. Why must someone die in her novel, Leonard Wolfe asks Virginia in the film. Someone has to die in order that the rest of us should value life more, she replies. Laura Brown puts the vertiginous thought behind her and goes home, at least this time, to her family. Richard Brown, before he slides out of his top floor window, tells Clarissa that he has stayed alive for her, but now she must let him go. How should we treat death? David Hare, perhaps too consolingly, imagines the voice of Virginia Woolf telling us as she leaves us that she has mastered this question and understands what to do to look life in the face and to know it for what it is, to love it for what it is and then to put it away. And for all my reservations about the film, I, I must admit to you that I found that moment in the film very moving the film of the hours gained enormous publicity and won some prizes and it sent readers back in droves not only to Cunningham's novel but also to Mrs. Dalloway which for a short time became the number one paperback on Amazon's sales list the first time Wolfe's novel had ever been a bestseller but the hours though a popular and widely enjoyed film created considerable dismay in some circles and this is the the bit I want to conclude with which is to to talk you through the, the reactions to it uh, as always with Wolfe's posthumous reputation, there were transatlantic differences, and I think these play very important parts in, in this story. In Britain, the film brought Wolfe's usual critics out from under their stones. The novelist Philip Hensher, always a vindictively anti-Wolfian voice, wrote a piece called Virginia Woolf Makes Me Want to Vomit. <laughs> taking the opportunity to attack her truly terrible novels, inept, ugly, fatuous, badly written, and revoltingly self-indulgent. Some good fun was had at the expense of the nose, one critic suggesting that in the scene where Virginia lays her head down on the grass next to the dead bird which her niece has left in the garden for burial, she is comparing beaks. Uh, (laughs) LAUGHTER Here in America, the film was mocked by some reviewers for pretentiousness and liberal pieties, for instance, as a preposterous faux-feminist manifesto that blames the woes of the modern-day female on her historical disconnectedness. And it also came under attack. I didn't see this myself, but Daldry told me this in the interview. From spokesmen for Catholic churches, calling it an abomination which should be banned, there have been demonstrations outside cinemas, Daldry said, and suggestions that we're celebrating women who've abandoned their children. Readers and viewers more sympathetic to feminism, gay culture, and Wolf had other kinds of criticism. The family in the voice of Vanessa Bell's granddaughter Virginia Nicholson, complained bitterly about Kidman's inappropriateness in the part, about her gloom and lack of humour, and particularly about the absurd representation of Vanessa. Uh, Virginia Nicholson said to me in a, in a letter, very sadly, this film will inform the perceptions of Virginia Woolf of a generation of cinema goers. Uh, and many Wolfians were no happier. Chat rooms and wolf email sites, of which there are many, resounded with criticisms of the film. I won't go through these, But I'll give you a sort of rounding up of these in a piece by Patricia Cohen in the New York Times for the 15th of February 2003, which was titled The Nose Was the Final Straw. Uh, Cohen commented, many Wolfians are fuming, arguing that their idol has been turned into a pathetic, suicide-obsessed creature. Her politics ignored, her personality distorted, and even her kisses inaccurately portrayed. Uh, my favorite quote in this, in this piece, which gathers together a good many quotations, is from a Wolf doctoral student asking somewhat bemusedly, were Wolf's contemporaries obsessed with her nose? <laughs> you can just see this going into a thesis. Um, the, the vice president of the International Virginia Woolf Society, Varan Neveroff, spoke of, quote, having to defend my territory. Michael Cunningham, writing to me about this debate, asked, how dare she, how dare anyone consider Wolf his or her territory? I know of no other figure, he said, who inspires such ferocious possessiveness. Um, there was a very interesting discussion last summer at the Virginia Wolf Conference at Smith College, where the ambiance was predominantly feminist and pro-Wolfian. Um, a panel chaired by Brenda Silver, which was about this whole issue of making over uh, in which the English feminist critic Michelle Barrett dwelt on the shift of the political burden between Mrs. Dalloway and the the film of The Hours. She'd been particularly irritated by David Hare's claim in his introduction to the published screenplay that the devastation of AIDS provided a parallel to the devastation of the First World War. Barrett argued that there really was no parallel, but that the political centre or theme of Woolf's novel had been dropped in favour of a different political scene, a meditation on the implications of sexual choice. I think that's a very interesting and compelling argument. Daniel Mendelsohn was on this panel, he'd written a thoughtful piece on the hours in the New York Review of Books and he said that he really minded that I'm quoting him, there are now 50 million American cinema cinema goers who think of Virginia Woolf as that dame who drowned herself and wore brown clothes well I should, in conclusion, put my cards on the table as one of Woolf's biographers, what I mind about the film is this, one of the things that most interests me about Woolf is that she had a horror of using her fiction as a vehicle for egotism and confession, yet it draws profoundly on her own life. Indeed, one of the most impressive features of Woolf's story is the energy, power, self-consciousness, and strangeness with which she translates raw life story into highly formalized narratives. One of the jobs of her biographer, as I saw it, was to try and understand and explain that negotiation between the life and the work, where the work might be a performance or a disguise or even an evasion, but where there was never a simple equivalence between autobiography and fiction. The film collapses that complex relationship into a crude identification of life and work. Does it matter? Does it matter if the film's version of Virginia Woolf prevails for a time? Um, well, I, d- I think there is no one answer. Uh, yes, it matters, because it distorts and to a degree misrepresents her. And for any form of recreation of any significant life in any medium, there is a responsibility to accuracy. Remember, there is such a thing as a fact. No, it doesn't matter. Because she continues to be reinvented, made up and made over, with every new adapter, reader, editor, critic, and biographer. There is no owning her or the facts of her life. The nose is her latest and most popular incarnation, but she won't stay fixed under it forever. At the end of Orlando... Wolf's teasing spoof on conventional biography, her hero stroke heroine reaching the present day sniffing its smells and powdering her nose, calls all her various selves together for a biography is considered complete if it merely accounts for six or seven selves whereas a person may well have as many thousand. And James Ramsay realises as he finally gets close to the lighthouse and finds it isn't a bit like he expected it to be that nothing was simply one thing. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much. Um, So now we've come to the finale. I've already heard some of the uh, people in the audience that they're disappointed they won't be able to come back again tomorrow night. Um, And the floor is open for questions for Professor Lee. Please
1: sit down. Don't
2: stay. Don't stay, it'll take too long. Okay. (laughs) There aren't any questions.
1: I I I thought there there seemed to be an investment of having these three kisses, didn't there, in the the three stories. There there seemed to be a plan afoot to make the three stories in the film all have this key uh, moment of of lesbian intensity, of uh, breaking through the the barriers. I I mean, I, I didn't mind it so much but it, it seemed tremendously staged didn't it and, and kind of artificial I don't know whether other people have seen the movie I, must, I expect probably everybody has seen this movie I don't know but um, I don't know whether other people have theories about this but it seemed to me very much a structural device um, to show that all the women in the film had this within them um, that it wasn't what did you think Chris mm. sorry there's a mic there. do you want to No, did you hear I, the? Que- did you hear that question? What? Yeah, about the case between Virginia and Vanessa. Yeah. I,
0: I was mystified by the scene. I, I, the whole scene with the children, with the Bell children, I thought was they basically incomprehensible. Both biographically and.
1: Well, I don't think it was completely wrong biographically in the sense that the. You know, if you read the accounts of the relationship with the family, uh, there was clearly a way in which the the Bell family took a satirical view of Virginia Woolf and of her sort of um, intensity and and unaccountability. And my my view actually is that that family version of Virginia Woolf was very much um, dominant uh, and and very much fed its way into Quentin Bell's biography, which was a completely uh, charming, uh, adorable piece of work. And, you know, absolutely irresistible. But it did purvey, I think, my mad aunt. I I think there was something of that in, you know. And so those family jokes, which you saw a version of, I think, a rather kind of crude version of in the film... Did, did play a rather important part of, in her life story, I think, both um, both at the time and posthumously. And, of course, there is the whole issue, which I think that was implicitly raising, of her relationship to children and you know, whether she would have wanted to have them, uh, whether she had been prevented from having them, where, You know, what her life would have been with, ch- with children. And there are also very well-documented accounts of her relationship with Angelica, which was... Uh, uh, you know, almost tiresomely playful, and sort of extremely fantastical and win- winsome and whimsical. And I think there was, you know, the bird funeral. I think was getting at that. So I didn't think it was mystifying, uh, but I did find the kiss very artificial. Yeah. Yes. Do you th-
0: think it's detrimental to have a biographer influence her
1: work with her own emotional state? Do you know what I mean? You mean the biography should be neutral? Say a biographer is going through a traumatic experience and she puts her... (laughs) Yeah, yeah. No, I see what you're saying. Um, Yes, I think you should try for impersonality. Uh, I, I mean, one of the problems that you have as a biographer is what happens when you really dislike the friends of the person you're writing about. You know? <laughs> what happens when you get to that stage where you get for instance, I have I will now come clean about this. I mean my case in point in this book was Vita Applewest, West, who I find very unpleasant, actually. Everything I read about her and by her makes me think she must have been extremely obnoxious. Uh, and so you have to sort of... That, that has nothing to do with it, you know. You have to completely withdraw that state of mind and say, well, you know, she liked her, so this has nothing to do with me. So that's, an ex- that's a kind of obvious example where you've got to withhold your feeling. I think there are plenty of biographies which are written out of... Uh, hostility or uh, the wrong kind of passion Um, and I think that you, yeah, I think you have to watch out for it uh, actually. There was a bit of a conversation about this the the other night about whether biography can be, I think was it last night, the nights of merging in my mind, Um, about whether biography can be a form of revenge on the subject and I think that can be the case. I was just talking to someone the other day about a biography of H.G. Wells by Michael Corran, have I got this right? Who set out to write a biography attacking H.G. Wells for being a fascist. Okay that was his line, that was what he decided to do and that's what he did but it meant that he spent, what, four years of his life, five years of his life dedicated to this task of you know, a vitriolic defamation of H.G. Wells I mean, it may be perfectly true, I'm not going to defend H.G. Wells, but I just thought, you know, that's a very peculiar motivational basis for writing a biography I mean, that would be a, a hostile example. So yes, you can't do it without some affect you can't. You can't do it just neutrally. You can't pick a name out of a hat and say, "Oh, I'll spend the next ten years writing about this person." But you know, there's got to be some, some magnetism. Uh, but you've got to. You've got to get as close as you can, and then as far away as you can. It's the broken bridge uh, image that Richard Holmes uses in. Um, in footsteps, when he's talking about, uh, you know, the historical reach of the biographer, it's like the broken bridge at Avignon. You know, you can get so far, but it's on the other side, actually. Yeah. Yes. Wait for the mic, because otherwise, no one will hear. You.
2: Thank you.
0: Um, I just had some, I guess, vague questions about her diary. Uh, I was wondering, as a biographer, how important her diary was for you and
2: also if you were able to get a sense of how important it was in her own work
1: using her personal observations of her own life. It's a a very good question, and the answer is enormously important, hugely important. And one of the problems I'm having with Edith Wharton uh, is that she didn't keep a diary. You know, uh, and and you feel you're not privy to the inmost thoughts because pe- when people are writing letters, they're doing a very different thing um, from writing a diary. And of course, there's a long narrative, and many people have written about the difference between Woolf's diary and her uh, and her her letters. Um, yes, in terms of how she used it, I think she used it as uh, writing practice. Uh, as a conversation with herself, as a way of calming herself down. It's very interesting when she is deeply agitated about the imminence of a book coming out or something that someone has said to her that she simply can't bear or something that is troubling her. She works it through in the most extraordinarily candid way. And, of course, that's been used against her, you know, people who don't like her. Uh, or have decided not to like her, use the extraordinary candor with which she talks about her animosities and her, her prejudices in the diary and, and use that as a weapon against her. But nobody is more critical of her than, than she is herself. As for my own relation to the diary, I, I was allowed, and you're, I think you're not allowed to do this anymore because they're, they're fragile, I was allowed to read the... Um, original copies of the diary, which are in the Berg uh, collection in the New York Public Library. And they're not, you know, they're not like let's desk diaries with dates on. They're small, uh, um, quite slim um, notebooks, which she would bind in her own coloured copies. And she doesn't keep it every day. And uh, she sometimes runs one year from one booklet to another. And... Um, Uh, I will never forget the experience of, for the first time, holding in my hand the diary book, which, of course, is no shorter than the other diaries. It's the same weight in your hand uh, for 1941 and turning over the pages and getting uh, to the last entry on March the 28th, 1941. And I found myself turning over the pages. I found myself continuing to turn these blank pages. It was a very peculiar moment. I don't know what I was hoping for or doing. Um, so, yes, prof- profoundly important uh, to me and to her. <laughs> yeah. Yes? Will email... Um, email, the yeah. ...absence of
2: letters have a significant effect on future biographies?
1: Yes, Next question. <laughs> I never know what to do with that question. Yes, it will. Yeah. And I guess some there will be people whose life's job it will be to go back into, um, you know, into whatever it is and bring whatever it is out. I can't answer this question. <laughs> Give me one more question. Yes, thank you.
2: Um, I was wondering, oh, sorry, what you thought about the movie's portrayal of her relationship with her husband
1: um, and the novels, um, the hours portrayal. Of- yes. Well, I, th- I suppose I thought that was the best thing about it. I mean, what, one of the things I was trying to say in this talk was that I think that the movie was too full of expression. I thought it was too emotional and everybody had their emotions on the surface. And I felt that, you know, I, th- I think probably in the long years that Leonard and Virginia Woolf shared a life together there was probably an enormous amount of things they didn't say to each other as well as things that they did but what moves me and impresses me about that relationship is that it's a it's a working relationship it's a, it's a relationship in which people go on talking to each other. It's not the kind of marriage in which you end up saying, pass the marmalade, dear, and that's, it, that's conversation for the day. You know. It's a conflicted, arguing, political kind of uh, relationship. I think in the 30s they were very... Um, at odds uh, about um, the Labour Party's policy on rearmament, things like that. I'm sure those subjects, which he's supposed to have not taken any notice of, would have have occurred. Um, But I think it is a relationship of tremendous mutual respect and and support. And I I set my face against the version of Leonard Wolfe as the constricting, tyrannical, insensitive guardian, figure, you know, who stopped her doing things she wanted to do. I don't, I don't see that. I mean, I think it was a very um, uh, punitive relationship for him in many ways and it will be interesting to see what, what Victoria Glendinning does with that in the life of Leonard Wolfe that she's currently writing. Maybe one more? Yeah. And then we should close. Yeah, yeah it's coming. It's just behind you. Yeah.
2: Thank you. I wondered if you held out any hope for good biographical film, and if you have any thoughts on the difference between biography as text and biography as film.
1: <gasps> um, Kate, can you do that one? <laughs> if, you mean if there could be, any, could there be such a good thing as a, could, could there be such a thing as a good biographical film? Come on, help me out. Um, good examples of biographical films. What? <laughs> okay. <laughs> what? Doubt why. Motorcycle Diaries. Has anybody seen Motorcycle Diaries? She said, desperately grasping for help here. My mind's gone completely blank. I can't think of a single good one. I mean, they all turn into those terrible biopics where it says, you know, ah, Lenin, meet Trotsky. Um, I mean, the, the, one, the one that springs to mind, actually, as a, I'm sorry, this is the absolute non-answers to your question, is that indescribable film of called The Music Lovers do you remember, does anyone remember that film? I think the script was by Melvin Bragg and it was produced by Ken Russell and it was about the life of Tchaikovsky and it had that terrible problem that you have if you're writing the life of an artist, which is what do you do when they're thinking about, when they're composing because they're just sitting in and Orlando of course is very very funny about this, there's a wonderful riff in Orlando about how you describe the life of the writer, he sat, he sat, he wrote he wrote, you know? uh, we want our money back, say the purchasers of this book and so Tchaikovsky, you know So you get people doing this a lot. I mean, um, Ken Ken Russell, those films of Delius were very good at that. Lots of fantastic imagery for showing what's going on in the mental process. And I always remember the scene, I may have slightly caricatured it in my memory, where um, Tchaikovsky's having an argument at uh, at the dinner table or the breakfast table with his brother. And his brother says, you know, the trouble with you is, Tchaikovsky, you're pathetic. (laughs) And he goes, ah... (laughs) And runs to the piano, <laughs> and my, you know, my view, This is why I can't think of a good answer to your question, because in my view, they all come out like that sooner or later. Anyway, enough. Maybe I should call a halt. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Thank you very much, and uh, the next public lecture will be next Tuesday night here uh, with uh, George Dyson. Thank you, and good night.